shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone. All us to stand before the throne. Christ a couple of announcements. Uh, don't forget, next week is practice time before we have the Christmas program on the 18th. So if you're involved in, in, in any capacity in that, plan on being here next week, plan on sticking around uh, after the service for a little run through. So just, just be, remember that that's coming up. It's hard to believe that uh, we're into December already and um, you know it's going to be a new year before we know it. So as we think about uh, new things, we're excited to introduce someone to you this morning. Uh, Mike, Mike, want to come over and grab this microphone and uh, introduce our, not a guest, uh, but uh, we're excited to have Jesse here now. So many of you maybe uh, got to greet Jesse South and his wife Mackenzie and daughters Eliza and Emmeline. Um, excited to have him here with us finally. So he'll be starting as our youth pastor this week, so thank you all for your continued support of uh, bringing him on. So I'm just going to ask Jesse a few questions here. Why don't you just tell us about your, your family real quick and just yeah. overview. Well, I was hoping to introduce them and get them to stand up, but currently my wife is back in the nursery trying to get the kids settled in, so they're not in here right now. But I, uh, I have a wife. We've been married nine years. Her name is Mackenzie. Uh, if you stay after and meet us in the back, you can meet her. Uh, we have two kids, um, both girls. One's five. Her name is Emmeline. She's the social bug of the family, so she'll probably introduce herself to you at some point if you're around. So, um, And our, our younger daughter is Eliza. She's kind of the opposite. She probably won't interact at all, but um, if she bumps into you in the hallway with her shoulder, that's how she says hi. So <laughs> she's just saying good morning. Um, this is her thing. So, um, yeah, we... Uh, Recently moved, two years ago, moved from the Des Moines area um, out to Washington. We, during the COVID pandemic, we left um, our, our jobs and our home, and we went out there to, to live in an RV so we have some more affordable housing while I finished my schooling. Um, and I recently, this spring, graduated from Moody Bible Institute, and we followed the Lord's calling here to Creekside and are excited to be serving the Lord here. All right. Awesome. So can you give us some highlights of your experience in youth ministry and we share a lot with, with what you, you know, in terms of evangelism and your desire to see youth uh, grow and, and, and know the Lord. So share, I guess, what, uh, what goals you've had in the past and what you've done through, through ministry. Okay. Well, I, I would like to start by sharing a little bit of my own experience as a youth in youth ministry. I had the blessing of being a part of a youth ministry, a strong youth ministry that allowed space for fun and activities and um, for connection and in the midst of that was a strong emphasis on um, God's word and on uh, teaching, on worship, and on service. And so I got to experience that. So I have had a strong desire to be a part of that for other youth, is to help them through this um, stage of growing up and, and, and a lot of change in life. Um, for me, a very important aspect was 
um, being able to go out on service trips, on mission trips, and to learn to share my faith um, with others. So that was a huge impact on my life, and that's something that is really dear to my heart, is, is outreach ministry and being a, um, a church that is reaching out together to our community and to communities even beyond our own. Um, as far as uh, ministry goals and ministry philosophy, um, it can be summed up really, really simply of I have a desire to make disciples of Jesus. I'll elaborate a little bit for you. That can be pretty easily explained in four points. The first one is building a team of uh, Christ-centered leaders who will build Christ-centered relationships with students, students in the church, and also youth in the community, um, and be doing outreach. Um, and the Christ-centered relationship is really that focus. That's where I think discipleship happens best is in Christ-centered relationships. And then the second point is, is in those relationships and in those settings that we have together um, to have biblical teaching that climaxes with the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. The third point is then as students come to know the Lord and are growing in their faith, to help them identify their strengths, um, their weaknesses, and help them to grow deeper in their faith, help them to begin to learn to be a part of the church, begin to learn to serve um, and, and their role in the body of Christ. And so then the last point kind of brings it back around, kind of a spiral effect of, of getting those students as they're maturing opportunities to begin serving, opportunities to begin being on mission for Christ, um, both locally and abroad, um, whether that's short-term mission trips or reaching their friends in school or their peers in their sports communities, um, wherever that is, and being focused on empowering them to live for Christ. So yeah, that's kind of the, the, the process of, of discipleship that I hope to see happening. Awesome. And lastly, how can this church be praying for you as you begin? Um, first off, we have a few practical things uh, as a family moving. We, we haven't got into our apartment yet. God willing, it will be Tuesday, and that will be settled. But we're trying to get our kids into the Urbandale School District. Um, and there have been a few bumps so far, but I hope, God willing, that will work out. So be praying for that. Um, also be praying for us as a family. I know from the past, and we've already begun experiencing some, that when you're serving the Lord, Satan wants to take you down. So there's spiritual warfare. So please be praying for us in that, praying that we'll be relying and leaning heavily on Christ um, and not on our own strength. And also you can be praying for me as I begin the process of, of uh, searching out God's vision for the youth here at Creekside, um, just that I can see what God is planning and what he wants to do. And um, also just wisdom and discernment to, as that is being implemented. I'm going to call a couple of elders up. We're going to pray over Jesse. Um, while they're doing that, I'm going to mention that uh, since these guys are moving in Tuesday instead of today, which was the original plan, if we have any availability during maybe the middle of the day, let me know to help move. Uh, they're just moving a few blocks north of here, so it would be from the, from the garage here where most of their stuff is to just a little bit away. So if we have any people willing to help with that, that would be great. So let me know. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, bringing Jesse and Mackenzie and their family here to Creekside and uh, for the heart of ministry and discipleship that you've given them. And I just pray for them as they start this ministry here at Creekside and for us that we would stand and fight side by side as brothers and sisters in the work of the gospel. 
and making disciples for you and spreading the, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world around us. And uh, so I just pray for a special uh, provision and protection for them and that you would uh, give them the faith and the, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, that they would be equipped with the sword of your spirit and um, that many souls, young people would come to know Jesus as Savior and be integrated into the church here at Creekside and, and become missionaries in this world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, great. Uh, young people, you are uh, dismissed for Sunday school. So if you're uh, one of the Sunday school age young people, you can make your way to the back and We'll get going. Uh, welcome aboard, uh, Jesse and Mackenzie. Exciting times. Also, just a, a shout out here. We got some uh, folks, uh, former Creeksiders and Markarts, have joined us from Tennessee. So, um, no, no, uh, no Southern drawls yet, but they're uh, they're here with us, and so we're grateful to have them and thankful for their presence. I'd invite you to um, bow with me as we continue to worship through the study of of God's Word. Let's pray, Father. Uh, what a blessing. I do pray for uh, Jesse and Mackenzie and the girls and ask that as they uh, get settled in that you'd help them with that. And as they uh, deal with the, the, the change and as they deal with just the physical demands of having moved and now jumping right into ministry, I pray that you would strengthen them with all might by your spirit in their inner being, uh, that, that, uh, that they, would, they would be able to know your presence and your peace and your power. I pray that you'd help them to get uh, adjusted and settled, and I pray that you would continue to keep them moving forward in, uh, in their own walk with you. I ask that you would guide us as we study your word this morning. Open our eyes, Father, as the psalmist prayed, that we might behold wonderful truths from your word, but not just that we would behold them, but that we would act on them and that they would become part of who we are. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, uh, I'm not a big FIFA guy. Uh, that's... Uh, soccer or football if you're the rest of the world but I do know this the USA team uh, consisting of a bunch of uh, very well trained and highly skilled uh, soccer players uh, beat Iran earlier this week and I'm also fully aware that yesterday they lost uh, but when they they beat Iran they were trained and equipped to do it and they fulfilled their calling right when they won they did what they were supposed to do they were supposed to win well it doesn't really matter uh, whether you're at work or whether you're a professional athlete or you're in the church of Jesus Christ, if you're called to do something, you're called to walk in a way that you're expected to do based on your calling. We're all supposed to walk the walk. And as we're in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul's plea in Ephesians 4.1 was to walk worthy. To walk worthy of our calling, which in fact, I think, this plea kind of 
forms the theme of chapters 4 through 6. It's all about walking worthy. And then in each of these sections, he teases out a little bit of what that means in different contexts from a different angle and from a different perspective. And so this morning, as, as we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, we're going to see one of those aspects. Because it's really true. Our conduct should reflect our calling. Who we are, chapters 1 through 3, our identity, should be revealed in our activity, which is chapters 4 through 6 in the book of Ephesians. And so last week, um, Bob began uh, by uh, unpacking for us a little bit about what this idea of unity looks like. Our identity is, is in unity, which, which is what it means to be part of God's family. And walking worthy relates to unity, okay? So you're a unified body. And, and this unity, it begins with, a, this walking worthy begins with promoting this practice, this conduct, and also a commitment that prioritizes unity. So if we're going to walk worthy, we have to act like we're unified and we have to make unity a priority. Now this morning, we're going to look at 7 through 16 in chapter 4, which is actually, if you took it all together, 1 through 16 is one big chunk. And so this section, 7 through 16, verses 7 through 16, kind of expounds and expands on what we already looked at. So in these verses, unity is paired up with diversity. Okay, so you've got unity, verses 1 through 6, and you pair that up with the diversity of chapters 4, 7 through 16, and this produces maturity, which is actually what it means to walk worthy. Unity plus diversity, produces maturity, which gives us a picture, one picture, one angle, at what it means to walk worthy. We're going to read the text in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, and we're going to look at two different additional elements that combine in that equation, which reveal for us that what it means to walk worthy. Okay, It is unity that's coupled with diversity that produces maturity, and that's what it means. Verses 7 through 16 of Ephesians chapter 4. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the serve of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ as a result we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself, in love. 
Now, like every section of Ephesians, this is packed full of, of stuff. But we're going to look at these two additional elements in that equation. And the first one is that commitment to unity. Now the contribution of diversity. He's talked about that we're unified as a body. But then he begins, and notice the first word, he says, but. So there's two factors that reveal the value, the integration of, of unity. So the but is a trigger, oh, something else is going on here. All right. It introduces the contrast. Or, or what, what we might think is a confusion, unity, but now he's talking about there's a, a difference, something else. But to each one of us, grace has been given. We're all one, but yet there's an individuality part of it. And what does this grace mean? Grace has been given to us. Well, grace refers to the ministry assignment that has been given to believers. All right, Every believer is the recipient of this gift. So there's no reason for anybody who has given, been given a gift by Christ, but to each one of us, grace has been given. No reason for anybody to brag about it, and no reason for anybody to be jealous because of somebody else's gift. In a few weeks, you're going to open packages, right? You're going to go and you'll be under the tree or wherever, and you're going to open a package. And you'll get something you don't deserve. Something you didn't earn. And if you got and received something you didn't deserve and don't earn, then why should you be bragging about it? <laughs> Look what I got. And especially some of you young people, you know. It's like, yeah, I like to boast about with, to our siblings. Uh, Look what I got. You got that. I got this. I got this. Uh, and maybe when we get a little older, we aren't any more sanctified. We, we kind of like lord it over. Some, well, I got this. My wife got me this. My, you know. No. And we shouldn't be jealous of somebody else. And so here he says, grace has been given. And just as God had graciously given Paul, and we talked about this in, in chapter 3. Paul had been graciously gifted with grace to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles and to understand the mystery of Jews and Gentiles together in one body. And in the same way, every believer is given a role in building up the body of Christ. And this is all according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, this is a, I'm just following the text, so it says according to the measure of Christ's gift. All right? Christ measures the gift of His grace, which includes... Not only the assignment of, of our responsibility and, and abilities, but his power to carry out that responsibility. So when God gifts us, when Christ gifts us, he doesn't just give us this gifting, this grace to do ministry. He also empowers us to do it and to carry it out. All right? And so the, the call to walk worthy in verses 1 through 6 through unity, is not, is not, not, not somehow uh, minimized by the fact of diversity, but it's magnified by the fact and, and, and helped along. In other words, diversity in the body of Christ, because each of us are gifted in unique and different ways, as we work and use those gifts, it helps bring us closer together in, in unity. Uh, think of it this way. We're all on the same team but we don't all play the same position. Or if you're musical, we're all in the same orchestra, all right? 
But we're not all playing the same instruments, all right? Even if you have a, a brass orchestra, not everybody's playing the trombone, okay? And so in the church of Jesus Christ, we're not all playing trombones. Uh, we're not all quarterbacks. Some of us have to, have to be in the, in, the, in the line, you know, and do the blocking. You know, you never hear about those guys. Never one of those guys, no one of those guys are being a Heisman Trophy winner. They're not doing this. You know, no, they're, they're not the Heisman Trophy winners, but they're the ones, the grunts, that keep the Heisman Trophy winners up in front of everybody. Because if they're not doing their job, nobody's running, uh, you know, making lots of touchdowns, running the ball. But that's what we are in the body of Christ. Different roles, same team. And now Paul defends this idea that Christ is the source and he has the power to give us these gifts through what maybe uh, some people might see as a little bit of a confusing thing, but he gives us a gift and the power to do it by establishing that this diversity comes from Christ's greatness. It's a gift of his grace, but it comes from his greatness. This is verses 9 and 10, okay, or 8 through 10. Now, verse 8, I'm going to read verse 8. It says, now notice how it ends in verse 7, to the measure of Christ's gift, therefore... So now he's connecting the gift with something else. And the gift he connects it with is Psalm 60, uh, the, the passage is Psalm 68, verse 18. And what he does is he applies the imagery of this Old Testament passage uh, to Christ. As a conquering king leading his, uh, his, his captors in triumphal march, in humiliation of them, and then he gives some of the spoils of war to his people. That's the picture of Psalm 68 verse 18. And he's applying that to Jesus and saying that Christ's triumph over evil. And notice the connection, verse 7, Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he, meaning Christ, he's applying it to Christ, when he ascended, his triumph over evil, every form of evil in every corner of the universe and his giving of spiritual gifts is what he's talking about. It's Christ's victory over all of evil and his giving of gifts to men. That's what he's, being, that's what he's talking about. Now, this similar passage or similar ideas in Colossians chapter 2. I want you to turn over there. It's not too far away. In Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 talks about this victory. And it talks about Christ having, been, having canceled out the certificate of debt. This is verse 14 of chapter 2. Consisting of decrees against us, and when, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way. The certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. He triumphed. God triumphed through Christ when he, he, he rose from the dead. And he gained victory. So then 4 through 9 is, is kind of like, okay, well, wait a minute. So Christ ascended, and he, he was leading this triumphal procession, but wait, wait a minute. How, how did Christ ascend? I, I'm, so 9 and 10 is a parenthetical thought explaining how it is that we're talking about Jesus ascending. Well, he goes on to explain it to us that He's establishing, he ascended and he established this, this victory and therefore he has the authority. And how did that all happen? Well, verse 9, look what verse 9 says. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended 
into the lower parts of the earth. Okay, Jesse uh, came back to central Iowa. Well, how did he come back unless he had gone somewhere else first? How did Jesus, the glorified Christ, who was with the Father at the beginning of the creation from eternity past, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How did that Jesus Christ, how did Christ the Savior, how did He ascend if He was already in heaven? He must first of all gone somewhere else before He came back. So He descended. Okay? How is it that he ascended except that he descended? So we define his ascension in terms of his descension. And his descension was, as the text says, to the lower parts of the earth, which theologians would like to debate long and hard about. My take on it is he, de- he descended to the lower parts, namely the earth. Well, I could get into the grammar, but grammatically, it is, it, it, it's equated. The earth and the lower parts are the same of the ways to interpret it. But therefore, when I do not read the Apostles' Creed, I do not say that Jesus descended into hell, which is what would be taken if you said he, some interpretations of this. No, he descended to the earth in the incarnation. And in the incarnation, he came, which I think is something we're going to celebrate here in a few weeks. He descended to the earth, the lower parts, namely the earth. And on the earth, he lived a perfect life. He lived a perfect life, and then he was crucified. And he was crucified on the cross, and then he rose from the dead. And after he rose from the dead, he ascended on high to be with his Father. Now, if you want to look in your Bibles over at Ephesians chapter 1, you can read verse 19. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, verse 20, which he brought about in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. All right? In the heavenly places. That's where he seated him. He ascended victoriously in his death, burial, and resurrection over all forces of evil in every corner of the universe and creation. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it talks about the fact that he conquered and liberated us from death and from Satan when he, when he came and when he died. And so I just pause right now. Have you experienced that liberation? Have you experienced that freedom? I'll read it for you. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says this. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself, namely Jesus, Likewise also took, partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. When Jesus died, he gained victory over sin and death and the devil. And when he rose again, he proved that he had victory over sin, death, and the devil. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. So do you have victory? Because you're trusting in Jesus Christ in his death alone as the payment for your sin. He 
He won it. And he rose, and he's leading a triumphal entry. He's leading triumphantly over all of the forces of evil, Satan and all of his minions and all of the forces of evil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. He defeated it. And that's what he, he descended so he could ascend and gain that victory. Now, verse 10. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all things, all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Okay. I think Paul just wants us to know, hey, look, this is really the guy. The same guy that descended is the same guy that ascended, and he has ascended to a place of superiority, supremely ruling over the universe. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. The same thing we looked at, he's repeating, he's reiterating, that he might become the fullness of him who fills all in all. The fullness of him, who fill, that he might fill all things. Now, when it means he fills all things, what does it mean? I don't think it, it doesn't mean his omnipresence. It doesn't mean his presence. It means his preeminence, his transcendence. He feels all things and that he is absolutely supreme. He is elevated above all. He exercises his rule and he exhibits his power over all. And his rule is extended through the church, his body, which we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. And, it, and, and, and us reaching the lost and us reflecting the Savior. Look at chapter 1, verses 20, actually 22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are to be the fullness of Christ to the world. And through us, he fills all things. He becomes preeminent. As we share the gospel and people come to faith in Jesus Christ, as we lead people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ, and, then as we, and we do that because we're reflecting who Jesus is. And this is what Christ has accomplished. And so we see that He is the one who contributes to the diversity. And He has the power to do so. And he makes it happen. And so the risen, reigning, and benevolent king enables us to fill all things as he is the one who fills all things through us because he gifted us. That's where we go, the verses 11 through 16. The consequence of all that is maturity. Why did he gift us? So we'd be mature. There's unity within the body, but he gave us diversity. Why did he give us diversity? So that we would grow up in Jesus. And that's what it means to walk worthy. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, 16, Paul emphasized that the Christ's gifts promote maturity. That's why he gave them in the three ways. First of all, the representative gifts given affect the church's development. Notice it says in verse 11, and he gave. Go back up to, to verse 8 the end of the verse, to the measure of Christ's gift. All right? I'm sorry. And then verse, the end of verse, verse, I read verse 7, end of verse 8, and he gave gifts to men. What gifts did he give to men? Now he's talking about it in verse 11. Okay? Verse 8, the end of verse 8, he gave gifts to men. What gifts? Now he's talking about those gifts. And he picks up the gifts to men, the thought of verse 8, by 
by the, the risen and reigning Christ's grace, given in the form of the gifts to individual believers, his whole multi-ethnic family becomes the fullness of him who fills all in all. As he has given us gifts, and through that means, we become the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the picture. Um, money that's invested in politics uh, brings dominance to the people in whom it's invested. Gifts given to the church of Christ brings preeminence to the one who gave the gifts. It brings him glory. And that's the picture that he wants. And who did he give? He gave some as apostles and some as prophets. It's verse 11, all right? And now it describes those who, who were uniquely, uniquely gifted and uniquely called as ministers upon whom the foundation of the church was built, these apostles and prophets. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. You can write that one down and look at it later, but that's the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets. Okay, so who are apostles? Apostoloi is a sent one, all right? This means someone who's sent. And so these are the ones who were sent, and they had a direct connection with Christ. And Paul says, I'm the last and the least of these. Okay? He was the last and the least of the apostles. And they're, they're, they're the ones who've been entrusted with the, the, the mystery of Christ bringing together both Jews and Gentiles. This is Ephesians chapter, chapter 3, verse 5. Now, who are the prophets? I don't think these are Old Testament prophets. I think they're New Testament prophets. And they're people who were alive at the time of, of Paul, okay? That were moved by the Spirit to speak God's truth, sometimes to individuals, sometimes to the church as a whole, but always for the edification and encouragement of those to whom they spoke. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, okay? Then he gave some evangelists. Um, people gifted in communicating the gospel of salvation from sin, which brings peace with God, to those who believe. And this salvation is by grace through faith plus nothing. Ephesians chapter 2, we looked at it. Verses 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works. that No one should boast. It's Communicating to people that, hey, we're all messed up. You know, somebody says, well, I don't sin. Okay, we'll just start reading down through the list of the Ten Commandments. You know, have any idols? You worship anything? You devoted to anything else other than God? You know, you ever lie, steal, cheat? Look on a woman with lust in your heart? Well, pretty soon it's pretty evident we're all messed up. And if uh, somebody says they're not messed up, then you just ask the person who knows them really well. Yeah, he's really messed up. There, she's really messed up. You know, I mean, she's got really problems. That person doesn't even know they're arrogant as all get out, but they are. Nobody can stand to be around them because they're such a snob. Uh, they're really selfish. All they think about is, so we're all sinful. And because of our sin, we deserve God's judgment. His wrath, because he's perfect and holy. He cannot stand in the presence of sin. But God in his infinite mercy sent his son Jesus who lived on this earth and died on the cross as the payment for sin so that all who believe could be forgiven and be restored into right relationship with him. And that's what evangelists tell and share. And you know what happens? 
is God uses them in marvelous ways and people repent of their sins and turn and trust Christ and they come to faith in Jesus. And these are essential, not only in the foundation of the church, but the flourishing of the church and the expansion of the church. The Bible tells us that uh, Timothy and Philip were both evangelists. And then pastors and teachers, and these two uh, callings and giftings were, were related, okay? Pastors are shepherds, okay, of communities. They, they lead and they feed and they protect the flock from air. What do they feed them? God's Word, okay? Because God's Word is, is, is that which we need in order to be sustained. Now, what's interesting is that the, the teachers, they explain God's truth, okay? Teachers explain God's truth. But they also expose falsehood. And this is what teach, uh, pastors are supposed to do. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Pastors are supposed to do this. But it's not the exclusive work of pastors. It's not only pastors who are teachers. Others in the church are to be teaching, expounding the truth and exposing error. And we're going to see this in a moment in chapter 4, verse 15. Okay, But each of the roles with the attendant responsibilities that are listed here are representative. They're not exhaustive of the entire giftings that the Spirit of God, uh, that Christ gives through the Spirit of God. No. Uh, you can go to, this is my little uh, teaching here, okay. You want to know where the giftings lists are? First Corinthians, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. So that's the, the listings of the gifts uh, that God has given. That's not exhaustive either, I don't think. But it's uh, illustrative. They're examples. Okay, So in those places, those gifts, are, and the ones listed here, are representative. And since they serve to equip the saints to help build up the body of Christ, they're, they're emphasized here as, as critical at the beginning stages of the church. So that's why they're listed, and that's what they're brought together. So that's the, the, the representative gifts. Now we look at the reason for utilizing our gifts. Interestingly to me, interesting to me, in verse 12, the phrases in verse 12 kind of build on each other, you know, till we kind of reach the, the climax here. So they're, they're building on each other. There's a progression to the ultimate goal. So the immediate reason, notice the word for in verse 12, he gave them for, that's the reason, these leadership roles, the reason for them is, is to equip the saints as a whole, not just the equipping of individual believers, but the entire body which means local bodies, but even beyond that, to the universal church. Okay? And so they're for equipping. What's that mean? Equipping. How does that happen? What, what, what do you do to equip the church? Well, equipping, I'm just going to give you my take on it. Uh, well, if you're a leader in the church, you equip the church through teaching the church. Okay? Primarily uh, through preaching and teaching, but also through Serving together. You know, discipling people, and I really appreciate about Jesse articulating that. You know, you really learn what it is to be a follower of Jesus by following Jesus. And Jesus, he said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And so when we serve, when we as leaders serve people, when we join with people and serve people, guess what happens? We grow up like Jesus. We become more like Jesus. And so these are formal and informal settings in which this preaching and teaching and, 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 and ministry and service uh, take place. 
that, that happens in all these settings. I heard someone say this once, it's not unique to me, tell them what, tell them why, show them how, do it with them, let them do it and unleash them. I'll say that again. Tell them what, tell them why. Show them how, do it with them. Let them do it and then unleash them. That's how we equip people. We tell them what. What does the, what does the Bible say? We tell them what. We tell them why. Why is that important? We show them how. We do it with them. We let them do it and then we unleash them. We, we encourage them. We kick them out. Jesus did that with his disciples, right? He, carried, he walked around with them for a while and then he says, okay boys, you're going out two by two and uh, have fun. <clears throat> and, and then they did. I don't know, they did have fun because they came back and they're all juiced up. It's like, wow, <laughs> look what happened. And he says, don't, don't be excited about that, but be excited that your names are written in the book of life. That's the privilege we have. And so that's the equipping. The equipping takes place, all right? And uh, the leaders are called to do the work of equipping so that the saints can do the work of serving, so that the body of Christ can do its work of growing. You see the progression? The leaders equip the servants, and the servants serve each other, and all of us grow up in Jesus. And that's the beauty of the picture. The result is the building up of Christ's entire body. That's the end of, of verse 12, the building up of the body of Christ. Now, <clears throat> I don't even have time to go into it. I'd like to, but the mixing of metaphors that Paul uses all through Ephesians is just mind-boggling. How do you build a body? You build a building, right? But this goes back to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. It goes back to chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. He's talking about we're the body of Christ of which he is the head. So there's a body imagery. There's a, a physical, organic, uh, human physiology picture that's here but there's also this architectural construction picture and they're all used he just kind of piles them on top of each other to show us what it is to be growing up in Jesus building up the body of Christ of Christ's entire body to spiritual maturity so the expectation of being equipped and serving as a catalyst for maturity is so important that Paul bookends this section of verses 12 through 16 with it. Look at the end of verse 12. End of verse 12 says, for the building, the building up of the body of Christ. Now look at the end of verse 16. Causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. What do you think the point is? Building up the body. Maturity in Christ. Growing up in Jesus. That's the picture that he's painting for us here. That's what he wants us to get. Now, unfortunately, and here's the, here's the rub. Uh, Howard Hendricks, who used to be a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, once said this. He said, the church <clears throat> is often like a football game where there are 22 men on the field in desperate need of rest, watched by 60,000 people in the audience in desperate need of exercise. Unfortunately, that's the church of Jesus Christ. We have been gifted, each of us, individually. Notice he says, to each one has been given. In this unity, in this entire unity, each one has been gifted. And yet not each one is not 
utilizing his or her giftedness for the sake of building up the body of Christ. That's the tragedy. That's the challenge. Is that we never reach maturity as a whole body until everybody gets on board. Folks, this is not a cruise ship we're on. This is a battleship and we need everybody at their station. This is Paul's theology on the church of Jesus Christ and our maturity depends on it and our walking worthy is what it means when everybody's on board and everybody's doing it. So how do we get equipped? Well, you showed up this morning. That's a start. That's a start. You show up in the church, but when you come to church, what are you, what are you looking for? Are you looking to learn how to study the Scriptures when there's teaching? Does the teaching of the church model for you what it would be like for you to open your Bible and glean truth from it? Do you understand and get a picture of what it means to pray to God? What, is it, what does worship look like? Are you coming seeking to grow in your understanding of studying and, grow, and praying and worshiping God Almighty? This is what it means, how to praise Him and how, what it means to serve Him. And then we're equipped, but how are we employing our giftedness? How do you employ the spiritual giftedness you have if you're a member of the body of Christ? I haven't got a clue. I don't know. Well, suggestions. Pray about it. You see, if God gave us a gift, He's not trying to keep it a secret from us. Okay? I mean, like, you know, you wrap the packages, you put it under the tree, but pretty soon the kids open them up and it's not a secret anymore. Well, he's got these gifts he's given to us. They don't want to keep a secret. So you pray about it. Read those lists that I gave, you know, that you can find in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. Talk to godly people and say, you know, I'm really struggling with what, you know, I, I don't know. He's pastor's talking about this gifted stuff. I haven't got a clue. What do you think? You know, well, have you prayed about it? Have you read the Bible on it? Have you tried to investigate how you might serve? So try some stuff, you know. Go out there and do it. I mean, I, you know, you weren't, many of you weren't here. You heard me talk about Rosie. She stood up and said she really didn't want to do anything with children's ministry. And the next thing she knows, she's serving as the Iwana Cubbies leader, you know. Well, she learned. She's either gifted at it or she's not gifted at it, but she's learning where, where she is or isn't gifted. And it's okay to try and not do it. You know, it's okay to try and, 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 and fail if, if that's, the, that's the case. And so these, these, these objectives that, the, the, of maturity, that, that, that's mandated in this text, verses 12 to 13. Secondly, the objective of maturity is, is measured. In verse 13, verse 12, it was each of these phrases built upon the next one leading us up to the building of the body of Christ. I think verse 13, each of these phrases basically describes the same thing, the same goal from a different perspective, which is spiritual maturity. What does that look like? Until, he says, until it introduces these statements of one goal, but it's from different angles. So we're supposed to be working to build up the body until, until what? Until we all, what? All reach the unity of the faith. And so the first one is, the first phrase that he talks about is unity of faith. The first angle is unity of faith. What does that mean? You see the hard part about studying the Bible? It's like every time you turn around, you've got to ask this question. What does it mean? 
And then he asked, what does it mean? And they said, what does it mean to me? Then what does it mean to me? And then what should I do because of what it means to me? Well, look at chapter 4, verse 5. It says, there is one body, one, or no, I'm sorry, one Lord, one faith. So the unity of the faith, he's talking about the faith, the body of doctrine that we believe that unites us in the, as one body. So it, this idea, I think, the unity of the faith is when we all agree on the major doctrines of the faith. Um, <laughs> we were sitting at Thanksgiving and my brother and I were talking, and I were talking about politics. And my mother-in-law says, stop talking about politics. <laughs> I don't know if that was because we didn't all agree on uh, what we were talking about. But you have these discussions at Christmas. You don't, all, you don't talk about the stuff you don't all agree on. Well, in the church of Jesus Christ, we are supposed to be, if we're united, if we're moving towards part of what it means, to, we keep working until we all agree on the doctrine. We must know the doctrine, and then we must agree on the doctrine. The, the major doctrines. I'm not talking about whether you can wear you should wear a tie to church or whether you you know you can wear slip flip flops or whatever. That that's that's stupid stuff in my opinion. That has nothing to do with whether a person knows Jesus. Okay. Now, should we honor God when we come to church? Yeah, I think so. Should we should we come with an attitude of worship? Yeah, that's really important. But I'm talking about well maybe like Christmas. Like, was Jesus really God? When he was born as a babe in a manger, that's important stuff. Did he die on the cross as a substitutionary death to pay for our sins? Yeah, that kind of stuff. So we're unified in our faith, okay, in the knowledge of the Son of God, okay, or unified in, in, in the faith, biblical truth. Now, and especially, he goes on to say, especially when it comes to the knowledge of the Son of God. That's the next phrase in the text. I'm not making it up. Okay, so the knowledge of the Son of God. Interesting turn of phrase. Why did he say the Son of God? Oh, because they knew exactly what he meant. He was God. He was the Son of God, which makes God his Father. Anybody wants to know why Jesus was crucified? He was crucified because he claimed to be God. Uh, John chapter 5, verse 18. Uh, he claimed to be God. making himself, he, he was the Son of God, making himself equal with God. And so he's saying, you better be down on the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, the JWs aren't down on that. Uh, the Mormon church is not down on that. A lot of other people who claim to be Christians, they're not down on Jesus was fully God and fully man. He died on the cross. He rose again. He's still fully God and fully man. They got it messed up. Okay, so we got to know what it is. We, the Son of God emphasizes, you know, who he is. We must understand, to be unified, we must grasp the reality that Jesus is, his identity as the Son of God and his ministry as the Savior of the world. If he wasn't the Son of God, he didn't save the world. Okay? Can't save the world if he's not the Son of God. And that's what it means. This involves, what does it mean to know, uh, know the Son of God? The knowledge of the Son of God. We must understand the love of God. Remember Paul's prayer back in Ephesians chapter 3? That you may be filled with the knowledge uh, of his will, that you might know, uh, know Christ and the power of his resurrection and, and, and that you would understand who he is, the love of Christ. It says in chapter 3, verse 14, or verse 15, uh, oh no, 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in may love be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and what is the love of Christ. 
which surpasses knowledge. When we begin to understand who Jesus is, and we begin to prioritize our walk with God, and we come to an understanding of who Jesus is and the love of Jesus in a way that enables us to be filled with the fullness of God so that it transforms our actions. It's not just head knowledge, this knowledge of the Son of God. It's action that changes our life that He has in view. Then, then we become closer to what it is to be the measure of a man. Here we go again. What is a measure of a man? He's a grown-up dude, okay? He's, just a, he's, a, he's a manly man. He's, he's a real guy. To the fullness of, the, of a, mature, the, the, a mature man, he's, he's fully grown up. And the third description of this maturity we work to her is to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The pinnacle of maturity is the fullness of Christ. He's preeminent. He's dominant. And we worship Him and we follow Him completely. Now, 123, chapter 1, verse 23. Which is His body, the fullness of Him, which fills all in all. Chapter 3, verse 9, 19. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. That you may be filled to all the fullness of the Spirit. That's my paraphrase, okay? It's not literally what it translates, but I think fullness is a big deal. That we would be fully understanding of who Jesus is. This idea that's repeated, that, that, that the whole church is to be controlled by and to reflect Christ's character. Be filled with Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are you when men persecute you and speak evil against you and all manner of falsely against you because uh, of me. When that's true, that's what we're working towards. Okay? I'm not there. You're not there. We are in Christ, but we are not full of Christ. And we are not filled with Him to that point. But when we work together, that's what moves us forward. Anybody ever uh, carried stuff? So when you come to help Jesse on Tuesday, just keep this in mind, uh, you know, you're carrying stuff. It's like some people you'd wish they weren't carrying because they're, 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 they're dragging you down, like they're just working against you. It's like, uh, I got this. You know, just don't, just leave, okay? Because it's more work with you here than it is without you. You know, I, I, I ran a two-man saw one time with my dad. It's like, you know, if, if one guy's hanging on and the other guy's pushing, it's, it's a whole lot more work. In the church of Jesus Christ, some of us are just hanging on. And we need to get in the game. The fullness of Christ. And so we are united with Christ, but we're still in the process. My grandson is growing up to be like his dad, but he's not there yet. Okay. 
This is the full maturity for which Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Okay? And it's only possible if we use our gifts. Finally, he says the results, uh, they're the results of, in the application of maturity. Notice it says in verse 14, as a result, okay, as a result. What happens as a result? Well, there's stability and there, there's purity. Um, no longer like children tossed to and fro. Children are gullible. And some of your children are going to hear a story about a fictitious character in a few weeks. And they're going to believe it. But it's not true. And just like that, people in the church believe what's false. We're easily swayed. Maturity moves believers beyond our childish proclivity to drift hither and yon, uh, be tossed to and fro by whatever wind of doctrine is blowing out there. Whatever heresy there is. And, and we move on to spiritual maturity. What is every wind of doctrine? Well, that's the, a metaphor uh, for spiritual children lacking uh, anchor, lacking grounding. You just kind of wave and wave in the wind and blown around by the wind. And uh, I'm saddened because I, when I read uh, social media, when I read the news or hear the news, there are churches in Jesus Christ professing pastors standing up before congregations and congregations drinking in the lies that somehow to take the life of an unborn child in the womb is, is, is okay, according to the Bible. This is abhorrent. This is biblically reprehensible. And yet, people in the pews are drinking it in, I, 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 you know, cheering in support of people who, who, who agree with that. That's tossed to and fro. And then he says, uh, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. You know the Nazis, when they, when they, when they took the Jews, they, they took them and they told them, Yo, we're, you get on this train because we're taking you to a better place. You know, we're taking you out in the country to, to small villages where you're going to be able to have land and all this kind of stuff. Stupid garbage. This is the kind of stuff. That we have in evangelicalism, there's this thing called deconstructionism, which is basically we're just going to ignore what the Bible really means and tell you what it means so that we're, we, we present to you a more palatable and preferable picture of what it means to be the church, which basically is no different than the world. So you can just do whatever the world does and you're okay in this church. Not in this church, not in this church, but in, in that church where, where deconstruction. There's, Satan is working, folks. And uh, I could list a lot of other stuff that is just not, not right. Prosperity gospel, liberation theology, CRT. I could go down the list. It's deceptive heresy. And people in the church are buying into it and believing it. Because they've moved away from this book. And there's not unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And people are not employing their gifts. We need to be anchored in the truth. Mature believers embrace the truth, but they also expose the truth. This is verse 15. Look at verse 15. He says, but speaking the truth in love. Who's supposed to speak the truth? Just the leaders? Just the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors? No, everybody. We're supposed to speak the truth. We're supposed to expose the truth. And we're supposed to speak the truth. And there's a contrast between the childishness of being tossed to and fro and standing up for the truth with verbal confrontation. Every mature believer is to speak. Now, now I, I do this in premarital counseling. Ephesians 4.15. Speaking the truth. So what's the message? The truth. 
What's the manner in which we speak the message? In love. And what's the motive for speaking the message? Well, that's verse 16. That's maturity, okay? I was in a, a church I served. We had one of, the, one of the church leaders was leading a Bible study. And uh, we, he showed us the book that he was leading the Bible study. It was heresy. And it was like, how, why is he teaching this? So a couple of the elders went to him and said, you know, uh, we just really have some concerns about this and don't really feel like this is something that we should really be promoting. I don't see the biblical... And he was like, okay, I'll teach something different. Speaking the truth in love. Confronting error so that we're grounded in the truth. And the same in, in, in love. Now notice, in love is a prevalent theme here. Back up in chapter 4, earlier in chapter 4. I think it was in verse... Um, Three? No, two. We're supposed to forbear in love. Now here we're supposed to speak the truth in love. And then later we're supposed to build each other up in love. It's in love. It's in the love that we have received in Christ that we manifest. That's how we do it. We're supposed to share the love of Christ. And the love that we're grounded in, the love that we're growing in, is also the love that we're supposed, that's supposed to govern and guide our activities as believers. That's what he talks about. Finally, verse 16. And what's the purpose of all this? From whom? Oh, Paul. Uh, Christ, verse 15, from whom the whole body. Okay? So here we, he's, he's working. Christ is the source. He's the source of what? He brings us back. He's the head. He's the source of our connectedness, and he's the catalyst for our growth. How's that working? Well, you got a body, and you got joints and ligaments that hold the body together. You got the head, you got the body, the joints and ligaments. Where are the joints and ligaments, okay? And as the joints and ligaments are, are, are doing their thing, and according to the proper working of each individual part, boom, guess what? The head and the joints and they all work together, and the head uses the working of the joints and the marrow, and all and joints and, uh, no, joints and ligaments, not marrow, joints and ligaments together. Why? To build us all up into Jesus. So Christ causes the growth. Notice the progression there in verse 16. It says, from whom the whole body, comma, then pick it up at the end, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The growth of the body is increased. So here's the deal. Unity? Yeah. We're all unified in Jesus. And we're supposed to grow in that, supposed to prioritize that, supposed to promote that through humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance in one another in love. But that unity, uh, that, that unity doesn't preclude our diversity. We are diverse within that unified body. We're all on the same team, different roles. And as we do our role, then the whole body grows up in love so that we reflect and we have the fullness of Jesus. That's the picture of what it means to walk worthy. And so I pray that we as a church would get serious individually about our part so that we can help each other grow, all of us grow up in Jesus and be the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And as we close, we, we pause to take the bread and the cup, which is where it all starts. Because we're not in Jesus unless we're trusting in Jesus. And when we pause to remember what He did for us, that's what brings us together into one body. And that's what we remember as we take the bread and the cup. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your grace and mercy. I pray that as we uh, take the bread and the cup, that we would reflect upon what you've done for us and we would 
be recharged, Father, so that we can live out our calling as grace-gifted people, using our giftedness for your glory in the advancement of the cause of Christ and the building up of your body so that we can reflect more fully the fullness of him who fills all in all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The body, the physical body of Christ was broken so that we could be brought in to the body of his church. So as we play this next song, uh, take a moment to reflect on what Christ has done. And then we invite all who are believers in Jesus to come up uh, to partake of the table and to remember uh, Jesus.